0: The Hub is a community Manuscript,
1: book and print cultures Stamping problems You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute
2: The Hub is a space Contemplating Ireland through the community
1: Created by Coral Zay The
2: The Hub is about impact The Hub is is for everyone
3: Our last panel uh, which is Cultural Value, Other Voices, Other Views which is kind of whatever you're having yourself, I guess, and we'll find out soon from a distinguished panel what their thoughts and their other views and other voices are. Um, you have the extended bi- biographies of, of colleagues who are speaking on the program itself, so I won't say much by way of introduction. People are gonna speak for five minutes and we, we should be strict about that so we'll have plenty of time for conversation and discussion afterwards. We're gonna begin with uh, Pat Cook, who's the, uh, director, who was the director of the MA in Cultural Policy and Arts Management at UCD for many years. and As the author, I saw you had it, I think with you, an extraordinary book of well over 400 pages. There, I mean, quite remarkable uh, book and uh, which came out last year and an important one for people to engage with. We'll then be turning to, to Maureen Canelli and uh, Maureen is course director of the Arts Council of Ireland. Is it, I would, can I allow to say that you're an anyone anyway, like Galway graduate? Yeah. Can I make a parochial <laughs> comment <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm at it? I hope that's all right. And to, to, to Robert Reed, who is the uh, CEO of the National Concert Hall here in Dublin, and Lynn Scarf, who's director of the National Museum of Ireland. So we have a very distinguished panel, and they have so many accomplishments and so many other activities that they're engaged in currently and in the past, that I think they'll draw in as well. So without further ado, we're going to start with Pat, and uh, look forward to your comments. I As
1: you wish, very much. Very much. Uh, well, okay. I, can sit, I can sit here. Yeah. Um, I was kind of glad, eventually, that Stephen mentioned the issue of class and inequality at the end of the day there this afternoon. Because if I were to say there was a specific deficit in the discourse around cultural value at the moment, it is around the fundamental questions of actually economic inequality and the questions of social justice that arise from these very material conditions of people's lives, and they matter to this se- sector. And I went back uh, through the, the 1916 report, sorry, the 2016 report that uh, Jeff was the, one of the co-authors on during the week, and I did a kind of little discourse analysis on you- looking for words like class, um, e- equality, and inequality. And the kind of thing I was finding was that, generally, the references to equality and inequality were intracultural. In other words, they were around questions of diversity and around identity. So it was largely gender and ethnicity-based concerns about equaling up. And disability came into the equation quite a lot. But there are very few references to classism. And indeed, there's only one use of the word capitalism in the entire uh, document and that is a reference which itself references Raymond Williams um, and the inter- to go back to Williams I think he never lost sight of this question of the social justice thing and he had this great quote in his book Culture and Society which I feel is a foundational text for anybody interested in, in culture and value and uh, he he actually in that um, he quoted uh, William Morris in the 19th century. Um, and uh, William, uh, this is the quote Surely anyone who professes to think that the question of art and cultivation must go before that of the knife and fork does not understand what art means or how that its roots must have a soil of a thriving and unanxious life. And every time I read that, I'm, I'm always reminded of that great management paradigm. Do you know uh, Maslow's hierarchy of value. With you know the base needs at the bottom, of the broad base, and then self-actualization at the top. Well, I always think you know that pairs a pretty good analogy to the way it works dynamically in terms of the class structure of society. Self-actualization is a kind of an elite activity and achievement at the top of that of that pyramid. And somewhere over the last 30, 40 years, in the processes of the neoliberal age, shall we say, we lost sight. I think, of these fundamental questions of social justice as intrinsic to cultural value in some way. And one of my great sources of inspiration on this is the American uh, literary professor, as it happens, um, uh, Walter Ben Michaels, who wrote a book called um, The Trouble with Diversity, extremely challenging book. Um, and he challenges the, the, the dominance of cultural diversity um, as a valuation system. Uh, within society, the damage it's doing. Just a few quotes from him. The big selling point of cultural diversity is that cultures are essentially equal. That's what makes them different from classes. Since classes are essentially unequal, they involve more or less money. He claims that we would much rather celebrate cultural diversity than to seek to establish economic equality, to the extent that the phantasm of respect for difference displaces the commitment to economic justice. Now, only last week I was listening to the analysis program on BBC4, and it was a great discussion there involving the distinguished Nobel Prize winning economist, Angus Deaton. And one of the remarkable pieces of data he put out there was that, um, that out of the total of all wealth resources in the US in 1990, half was owned by those with college degrees, and the other half by those without a college degree. Whereas today, the proportions are three-quarters of all wealth is owned by those with college degrees, and the other quarter of wealth is owned by the two-thirds of the population who do not have a college degree. Now, we need to take these on board to the reflexivity of this sector we live in. I think, again, Stephen alluded to it in his. I would say everybody here in this room has a third-level degree. Um, and I would say the vast majority of artists and practicing artists have third level degrees. So they're part of a, of, of a socially privileged group. Um, Bourdieu has a fantastic phrase to describe the social position of the artist. He calls them the dominated fragment of the dominant class, which is brilliant. And the way he would describe that is kind of anecdotally, it would be the younger brother or sister of a generally well-to-do family who can afford to be a Bohemian. Um, So they suffer this double alienation from their own class, and they wish to fraternise with a class from which they were also alienated, namely the working classes. And this I'm afraid to say, and it comes across in my book I hope, is this has been reproduced in our arts policies over the last 30 to 40 years. The big cleavage in Irish arts policy since the foundation of the Arts Council was that before 1973 the Arts Council would only fund amateur arts, and would not, and had an order saying we will not support the professional artist. This was brought in under, ironically, the only artist who ran the council, namely Sean O'Foyle, himself a writer, and a strong libertarian who believed that the artist had to remain independent of public funding. By 1973, we get a a shift. For the first time ever, as a result of the Arts Act, artists are put onto the council. So therefore, you have the interests of artists being directly represented to the council itself. And to the question this morning, Who wants to know? It's not only government wants to know, artists want to know. Artists have an interest to protect. So when you get to the 1990s, and you get a a very dynamic intellectual in charge of the council, namely Kieran Benson, former professor of psychology in UCD, he tried to push forward a much broader communitarian agenda for the arts at that time. But the artists were having none of it. Because as far as they were concerned, every penny that went to community was money out of their pockets and money out of their out of their mouths. So, and I mean, there is a class insensitivity there. So we got around to a point where the Arts Council would only invent the uh, subsidised community arts to the extent that the professional artist was involved in doing projects there. It wasn't really about empowering from the bottom up, as the original Arts Council had under the ethic of amateurism. So I would say we need to talk about class. We need to talk about inequalities of wealth. And we need to talk reflexively about ourselves and where we stand as privileged, educated individuals in the overall scheme of how culture is spoken about and deployed. I mentioned in my comment earlier on that the the Arts Council survey of 2004, I think it was, clearly said the public answered back on a value basis, we want education and local community arts as our top value, right down at the bottom of the list is the, is the professional artist. This is a challenge, a fundamental challenge for, for for arts policy and probably for cultural policy more widely. I'll leave it there for now.
3: Thank you very much Pat. And, and I should probably acknowledge that uh, Tanya Bonatti was due to be on the panel and is unfortunately suffering from, from, from COVID, but I presume she would have interesting thoughts to, to share on that. So, We'll turn now to Maureen Canale from a nice point of transition between historical questions related to the Arts Council to the, the current director, so Maureen.
0: Thanks, Dan. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you can hear me OK. And uh, so much in what you said there, Pat, that I'd love to pick up, hopefully, in the discussion, or, or indeed afterwards. Um, and I it's very fitting that we're having this discussion in the 70th year of the Arts Council. Uh, hopefully that, that has come to your attention, that we are looking back at the 70 years, but also using that to say what, what should the next decades look like. So it's particularly apt to think that we're having this discussion today. So thank you very much to, to Eve and to everybody involved in putting this together this afternoon. Um, I was going to reflect just for a few minutes on the what, what we define uh, from our experience and our perspective as being cultural values. So um, it's a good time because it's the 70th anniversary, but it's also a brilliant time because we're bringing forward a number of new policies, and a number of new policies have come forward, particularly our equality, human rights, and diversity, which I'm very pleased that Pat raised the the socioeconomic disadvantage theme there. That's, That's very much the guiding principle for us. Um, So every day of our working lives and the multiple conversations that we have with a whole range of publics, we use the concept of cultural value to press home the very reason for our existence. That's why we have an Arts Council, after all. It informs all our work. It, it, It informs how we assess applications, how we formulate policy in collaboration with artists and with those who work in the arts, how we make the case to government, and how we communicate about the arts to people. And I wanted to, first of all, look at the concept of change and how that's inextricably linked with our definition of cultural value. So many people in this room, I'm sure most people will be very familiar with the work of Francois Matarasso and we engaged Francois many years back before I was ever with the Arts Council to help us with the definition of what does good quality artistic activity look like. And Francois brought forward a, a document in which it's defined that artistic quality is Technically excellent work, which is both ambitious and original. It connects to people and their concerns, and it leaves audiences changed in some lasting way. And it's that theme of change that that I think is particularly important. That is what we're inviting artists and arts organisations to do: to say, how does your work change the public in some lasting way? And I'm reminded here of the the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, poet Paul Muldoon's invocation that a poem should be a disturbing unit and that the act of going through a good poem, reading it, experiencing it, should leave a reader changed in some way that hopefully is lasting and hopefully for for that person's benefit. And at the Arts Council, and I like the fact that you, you introduced Bourdieu, I like to think of creating a civic force field of the arts, of the arts as charging units, so like electricity, power stations, in multiple locations that will really deliver real and lasting cultural value. Um, a colleague of mine, Susan Collin, will be known to many people in the room, known to Pat I'm sure, who used to work at the Arts Council, she uh, brought to my attention <coughs> the report which was brought forward in early 2020 in the UK from the Arts and Humanities Research Council on understanding the value of arts and culture. I'm sure many people here are familiar with it and that looked at 70 original pieces of work And an important conclusion from that research is that one of the most significant ways that arts and culture activity and engagement brings value to both individuals and society is by creating the conditions for change. And the report talks about an openness, a space for experimentation and risk taking at the personal, social and economic level, an ability to reflect in a safer and less direct way on personal, community and societal challenges and much else. And these changes may involve significant personal transformations, such as improved self-understanding and a breaking of routine ways of thinking, and may also affect how we relate to others through increased empathy. And I'm sure your empathy has come up already. And I guess we'd all agree that the pandemic is changing the contours of the very way we live our lives, of how we think about each other, of how we have increased empathy, how we can think inside each other's skins to a far greater degree. So as I mentioned at the top, the cultural value particularly informs our approach to corporate policies in recent years. So in the summer of 2019, we brought forward our equality, human rights, and diversity policy. In uh, February 2020, we brought forward the paying the artist policy. And shortly, in a a few weeks time, we'll be publishing our spatial policy. And what we're looking at here, and particularly in terms of spatial, is the impact of the work we support How do we ask people about the work we support, how do we measure it, and how do we communicate it? And last year, we introduced a social impact assessment guide. It's available on our site. And it's a way of helping us to help organizations measure their work. And it helps us ensure that we're applying the resources in the most equitable and efficient way possible. And make sure that the resources that we apply have a lasting societal impact. <coughs> that Inclusion and diversity are at the very heart of each choice and each decision that's made by us and crucially made by our partners. Um, and as mentioned, that the, the, we'll be launching our spatial policy in a few weeks' time and that guide forms a very central part of it. The central tenet of this spatial policy is our belief that everyone has the opportunity to create, engage with, participate in, and enjoy the arts and culture regardless of who they are or where they live and work. And we see creative expression as a fundamental part of our humanity. We want Ireland to be a country where people can confidently exercise their rights to creative and cultural expression and engagement, because we believe this ultimately leads to a richer, more multifaceted quality of life. And we're thinking of this spatial policy very much in terms of people and place. We know that places are dynamic and responsive to continuous change, and they are inextricably linked with both co- individual and collective identity. And who's part of this discussion around cultural value? Pat pointed out, you know, most of us here presu- probably have a d- of a degree of some sort of other. So we need to entirely rethink this. We know we've had not anything like all the voices in the room, and until we have that full panoply of, of perspectives and experiences fully in part of the discussion arena our de- definition of cultural value is always incomplete so many voices we know have been ignored overlooked sidelined and simply unheard over the years and it's a key driving imperative of ours that the new artistic landscape post-covid will have space for all these voices and will be vastly more welcoming and will be truly inclusive and i guess hopefully people know that we're, we're in the current scenario we have a historic Level of funding so it it has jumped from a base of 75 million in 2019 to a current level of 130 million. I hope that if I was here speaking with you at the 75 million, I would still be as determined about this this need to to push through our inclusion and diversity um, agenda. So just uh, a few very quick references to research. Uh, there are many international studies that, that have shown that involvement in the arts is a vital way to build empathy and that that contributes significantly to social cohesion and solidarity. We engage in um, surveys with behaviour and attitudes every year, and the most recent ones show that 61% of people feel strongly that the arts are essential to their, we- to their mental wellbeing. Um, We also engage in sustained surveys with the Economic and Social Research Institute and they show that children's participation in arts and cultural activities are associated with improved cognitive development and social skills. So it's heartening that the current programme for government says that the arts are essential to the wellbeing of our society and in bringing communities together we want to make the arts even more accessible and inclusive to everyone. So, coming to a conclusion, I want to turn back to Matt for a second, and in in an introductory piece he wrote for Kilkenny Collective for Arts Talent, a great organisation in Kilkenny, he writes that a work of art asks us to be open to another person. That's the extraordinary offer it makes, and there's nothing more difficult, more exhilarating, or more important when we make art we're trying to communicate what gives meaning to our experience of being alive and it's in that experience of us as audience you know in experiencing that piece of art we're communicating back to the creator but crucially we're communicating to each other as well in the hope of being understood and recognized and i imagine that that's what we all agree the arts did to glorious effect during covid The the arts enabled individuals and communities to express solidarity and maintain a sense of collective well-being despite the alienating effects of social distancing and all the other effects of the pandemic. So at the Arts Council we believe that Ireland could show extraordinary vision and leadership at international level in adding cultural engagement as a core area in a new well-being framework and there are discussions with that currently going on at the moment. It's an intensely exciting time for artists and for all who work in the arts in Ireland and for all who engage with the arts. We hope to harness the considerable energies currently at play, many of them present here in the room today, in order to build on this new reality with the ambition of realising the most supportive environment possible. It's a time of real, magical promise. And in doing this, I'm hopeful that we will arrive at a far better, a more inclusive and a far more complete understanding of cultural value.
3: Excellent. And I couldn't help but notice uh, that uh, you, you began your job with impeccable timing just as the pandemic was getting going. So you have had to deal with COVID right from the get go. So I'm, I'm no doubt there'll be further questions there. And we're turning now to Robert <coughs> Reed, who's been in post for a year now. So you're kind of mid, mid-COVID, This so to speak. <laughs> um, again, it's possible point we'll return to, but Robert, uh, mm-hmm. to you.
4: Thank you. Um, I guess I'm here today because um, I've, I've just had a very, very practical kind of personal experience of the profound impact that data utilization and research can have on an organization, its impact and the people that work in it. Um, a few in my last role. Uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, appointed to be managing director of an independent arts organisation called King's Place. Um, It was privately funded, well, uh, to some degree, but it was mostly funded through uh, self-revenue generation. So it did commercial events, uh, conferencing during the day to support the artistic programme in the evening. And it had a very broad artistic remit, uh, so it covered music of many different genres, but also included spoken word. Um, comedy, like podcast recordings, a whole panoply of artistic activities, um, and it was an organisation that had nicely grown over the years. Uh, uh, it, it started in—it um, was about ten years old when I when I took it on. Um, but it continued to do fairly well. But when I started, it was very much flatlining in terms of um, audience engagement and occupancy. Um, and it really did take me long to know that, to realise that, you know, I couldn't. just sustain the status quo, the status quo was not creating sufficient cultural impact and that change was absolutely paramount Um, and Maureen what you were just saying there about change just really, really resonated (coughs) with me Uh, because to be able to utilise, to maximise, enable change, um, I, I, I sort of finally realised that the only way I could do that in a very constructive and positive way was about data utilization. It was something that was very new to that organization. It hadn't really used it before, even though it was sitting on, on reams of it. And I think cultural organizations uh, have uh, a very privilege to have a vast amount of information that it gets in the box office, um, through its data systems. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sitting on this rich, scenes of phenomenal information. Um, and uh, I sort of had a, a kind of road to Damascus moment uh, when I realized that, is that we were, were not, we were just not in the habit of interrogating this accumulated, vast amounts of information, and how that could enable us to get a really an understanding of the truth, an understanding of the reality. Uh, of where the organization found itself in. And actually, I think one of the reasons that it hadn't confronted it, because it, it was scared about what the data would say. Because I think, I think the organization, and I think many organizations, get very comfortable in fooling themselves that everything's fine. Let's not look too far under the bonnet, because we're slightly nervous about what we might see. In, in fact, someone recently said to me, in my new role, don't look to, they're not there because if the board find that information, you know, they might not be really happy. Uh, but, but I think information can be scary. Data can be scary. Uh, but I think it is so much about, you know, just just sort of owning up to the responsibility of the truth. And I think once we started to look at that data, that information, and to really understand where we are, we couldn't possibly start to identify where we needed to change. Um, and through, through doing that, I then found that it also had many other transformational benefits. So for the first time of getting an understanding of who was coming, who was attending, um, who were we keeping happy, we could then see well, who wasn't coming, who who, who's, who's only coming once and then never coming again. All these really fundamental questions and enabled us to, to build up a picture of what needed to change. Um, who do we need to prioritise of all the different audience segments? Who are we keeping happy? Who are we not keeping happy? Who's coming to us? Who's not coming to us? Um, and that had a really sort of fundamental impact. For the first time, by looking at the data, we began to understand who we are. And that was something that, again, we hadn't really faced up to before. What, what is our position in the cultural landscape? What makes us distinctive? Because I think until then, we kind of assumed, well, we want to be the kind of you know, the, the best music venue in the UK, or the best music venue in, in, you know, all these sort of things. And actually, when we got to look at the data, we realised that it was, we, were, we were getting very high loyalty from people that were very close by. And actually, we began to realise that, isn't it enough just to be the best possible cultural destination in that part of London? And I think once we got an understanding of that, we took a huge weight off our organisational shoulders. And we were able to really pinpoint and target those audiences that were in relatively easy reach of that destination. And so enabled we to able to, to at last kind of prioritise our resources in very precise ways, um, and also to stop doing a lot of things. So we were able to kind of de-stress the organisation in a lot of ways that was throwing everything at everything. We were trying to programme, you know, we had a dreadful fear of dark days, so we had something on every single night. Um, and so actually when we decided we are going to prioritise this segment, that segment, in fact we, we had about four key areas that we decided that we were going to wholly focus on for the next couple of years. Um, and that was absolutely a revelation. It took a lot of stress out of the organisation, but also it meant that we could marshal our forces more precisely. Um, and it also gave us the opportunity to make this a cross-organisational responsibility, to so not let it just be the responsibility, of the marketing department and the programming department, because when we, when we did this, it realised it has a fundamental impact, not just to marketing, but also to what we're programming. And it meant that we were able to involve many people across the organisation. So many people, much, many more people, had an investment in what we were doing, this, this, this new way of growing our audiences. Um, and so it meant for a more cohesive, more unified team, um, and the, the result of this was that we started to see steady improvement in occupancy rates. And of course, like anything that you start measuring and tracking, uh, you can target improvement um, and you begin to see improvement, which you can then celebrate that knowledge and it makes people even more motivated to do better. Um, and of course, you can then extrapolate that to what you're doing about inclusivity and diversity, uh, about sustainability. So again, that once we have started that process to start Analyzing, tracking, measuring, target setting—it had, you know, implications far beyond just growing our audiences. Um, and, and of course, moving to Ireland, I found that there's a, a, this is you know, this is now so deeply ingrained in me. This is something that I feel is very much my approach in the organisation I'm running now. But don't have the advantage here of having um, uh, the audience agency to help me with data and comparability. So. It was very important for me to come along to this today, because I really want to be an evangelist and advocate for how we can build a coalition in cultural organizations in Ireland, uh, so that we can come together to, to look at how we are pulling data together, how we're utilizing our information, how can we get that, that, that analysis and that intelligence about who's coming and who's not coming, and what can we be doing to increase engagement, particularly with those uh, segments of the community who are underrepresented or don't feel that the culture is for them. Thank you very much, Robert. And um, so
3: you're leading something which has the word national in its title now, as opposed to King's Place, Absolutely. which was a part of local, as you're describing, and yeah. it its mission. So that takes us naturally to Lynn, also has a national brief in the title of our organization. So Lynn, uh, over to you for your, your thoughts.
2: Thanks, Dan. Um, The privilege and the pleasure of being last. So always tricky. The the question that was put was, was how do you define cultural value in your institution? So um, to start with, I wanted to tell a story. I've been in post now for four years. So I came into the National Museum of Ireland from Science Gallery Dublin, where I had been for a number of years, which wasn't a collecting uh, organization. so Different beast altogether. Um, and when I came in, uh, one of my first roles was to be introduced to all of the keepers of the collection. Um, sorry. And so we have divisions. We've, we, we have um, uh, you know, four museums, and each has a keeper. So we have a keeper of natural history, we have a keeper of Irish antiquities, a keeper of arts and industry, and a keeper of folk life. And so for somebody like me coming in to the organization, and hearing that term keeper, it sounded terribly archaic <laughs> and exclusive and holding this idea of keeper and holding this. And I bring the story up because I think it's important to think about. And we can play it all out a little bit. But at the moment, we have an exhibition up the road in the museum. It's Column Kill It's sacred objects of a saint. And, and it's, looking, it's his 1,500th anniversary of his birthday. And within that exhibition, we have um, the Shrine of the Cahawk. And those of you who are you know, historians will know better than me and talk more about this. But the shrine is, um, was made in the 11th century, and its purpose was to contain a manuscript that was known as the Cahawk or the Battler, and it was believed to have been written by St. Saint Col- Saint Columba. And those shrines were symbols of power and authority and sanctity. And they were used for tributes and curses and cures. And they were really important to society at that time. But what intrigued me was that the core of these relics, they were entrusted to hereditary tenants of church lands, to keepers, who passed them on from generation to generation to generation until ultimately It was taken into the Royal Irish Academy's collection in the 19th century, and then came to the museum. And the reason I bring that story up is because when I first heard the term of keeper, my personal value associations immediately went to thinking of that as being something of withholding, keeping, not sharing. But actually, the story of keeper when you when you understand it is something entirely different. It's about, to Maureen's point, it gives meaning to our experience of being alive. It, it's, it's about this really important artifact of being carried through generations and generations so that so that we can come to look at it afresh each time and, and, and in some ways mobilize it to see what it can tell us about our present, right? So I bring that up because I think that that question about how do you find cultural value in your institution, and that story, is is really important. And I probably won't explain it clearly in the short time that we have. But I think what I wanted to get across is the National Museum of Ireland is interesting in the sense that it is a cultural institution, and as a cultural institution which has four sites and a collection space, it is heavy on resource. Right? It's you know it, it requires a lot to keep it going. And um, but. But you know, what is the value of that? Well, we talk a lot in our institution at the moment around relevance. Okay? And so going back to that, that piece that I mentioned, so we have a role around the conserving and the protecting of the collection. But fundamentally, that is intertwined with our role around ensuring accessibility and relevance and interpretation and engagement. And so that our collection should never be in isolation from the people that engage with it or view it. And, and our role is to to mobilise it in ways that actually reflect the multiple identities that are in our community, so that so that we understand that what we have, it can be mobilised in a way to engage, to do what 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 John was talking about and Stephen was talking about, to to look at that piece around social cohesion, and and I think that. That value, that value piece, that value proposition about valuing the objects in the collection, but thinking of them in the in the consideration of how we demonstrate the relevance of that collection um, is really important. Then the second piece I wanted to say was about being porous. So and what do I mean by that? So big institution again, and you know, our it, reading through, and um, um, Maureen mentioned it, the, the paper um, by the, the Arts and Humanities Research um, uh, Center, you know, that piece around intrinsic value of the collection and its instrumental value, elite and popular, amateur and professional. And rather, I think, and I know, Stephen, you cautioned against using the words ecology, but I think of, of our museum and our institution as being part of an ecosystem. And particularly when you talk about national cultural institutions, because they have heft and longevity to them and in some ways i think of them often as being anchors you know that we are our purpose is to to sustain the wider ecosystem around it be that around the museum acquiring new work within our collection be it around how we mobilize our institutions to provide space for events and concerts be it around how we connect in with our local communities and open up the museum space. I think about my colleagues and Emma, who did, you know, Annie did such a wonderful job up in Kilmainham about opening up that space throughout COVID and it being a kind of incredibly porous space. And all of those elements, I think, are important um, in terms of our value, you know, to society as a whole, right? Um, in terms of what we do. So I feel we're a key niche, and we need to think about that. And then I think so. so the, the other piece about that then is all of those things are lovely, but those values have to be in some way linked to our impact. right? And the issue, and Robert touched on this, the issue is, is that it's, it, traditionally we haven't within these institutions, for a variety of reasons, been very good at collecting data about who's coming, why they're coming, more importantly, who's not coming, where's the gap, um, and we need to get better at that. because. But I think the really interesting thing, and, and John, I think, always puts things really clearly for me. So I read papers, and then, and then I, I listen to, to um, John's talk, and it, it, it made it much clearer. It's that piece about, and Robert and myself were talking about this, rather than collecting data to prove a point, collecting data to understand.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that's. That's what we should be talking about today. We're not talking about collecting data to prove a point. What we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, we, we need to start collecting data to understand, mm-hmm. to understand whether these kind of pieces that I mentioned around value are actually In some way translating, existing for the visitors who come to our place, you know, who spend time with us, who give us their most precious commodity in the 21st century, which is time in many respects, right? So I think we need to start thinking that way. I think that it's really exciting to have this conversation today. And what I would and I'm and what I would love to see is something that that starts to rather than be knee-jerk to take a long and deep Look, and sometimes my staff say say to me, "No, we need to slow down on this thing, and get a long, deep look." I go, "No, no, we're just doing that. now." But I think in this case, it is about this. Long, like we need it, we we do actually need to look at a kind of baseline piece around this, and to build that, and to start to un- to actually understand, you know, and to see it, how that maps against our value. And then finally, one of the things that you know, Pat when you were talking, and I hadn't that, that I found interesting that I, I, I wrote down. And it came up a bit in Stephen's talk. And I haven't seen fully thought this out yet. But it's a little bit to do with what you were saying about that high arts and arts and culture piece. And I was thinking that, um, and the class piece. So of the four divisions in the National Museum of Ireland, three of them are predominantly collected by professional amateurs. So. In three of our museums, the things that we have on display are things that somebody who was walking up a mountain saw and dug up and gave to us, or somebody within the, the folk life collection had made themselves like a be you know, patch chose to give to us, or was a natural historian, citizen, the early citizen scientist out to. And so there's something quite powerful in that, actually. And I think that that links back to this idea that we've been discussing, and this um, tension between the sort of cultural democracy piece as well. So this idea that in some way, these things are either end of a spectrum, and that's it. Nothing exists in between. And, and I think for me, m- by nature, I'm always actually interested in the in-between, because I think that's where the really interesting stuff is. And so, from, a, from the perspective of an institution like the museum, I actually think that one of the, the most difficult things that we could, the, the most damaging thing, actually, we could do is try and shoehorn an evaluation process into something incredibly complex, which everybody has brought today. I thought, Emma, you made that point really well. And I actually think that what we need to do is, is understand and then try to build models that help us understand more. <laughs> Um, that help us look at the grey, that that stop us from polarising the, the the sort of the amateur and the elite, the kind of you know, and, and and actually, or as and it's a shame in some ways that Tanya isn't here today as well because there is a lot of tension that exists even within the community, you know, the culture, arts and culture community at the moment about programs that. Kind of prioritise participation over the artist, perhaps you know. The, and Maureen, I know you'd be very familiar with that. So just unpacking that a little bit, I think, and and not driving things into the extreme, but looking at that spectrum and understanding better. Thanks.
3: Thank you very much, and to all of our panelists. Uh, I mean, there's a great deal to, to think about there. I'm just going to stand up so I can see people. Um, I w- was intrigued. I don't. I haven't really heard the word heritage mentioned today, which I find fascinating. But people haven't felt the impulse to go towards heritage as a justifying term. it's maybe something to to think about amongst all the other different things that we could contemplate. Plenty of opportunity for questions, contributions, um, declarations, and so forth. Eve.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, And uh, it's
5: it's probably a comment as much as a question. But rightly, all the panelists have focused on participation, uh, representation, usage, data uh, uh, of uh, attendance and audiences and so on. But I wonder how we factor in, not as an alternative, but in addition, that vicarious value that comes from the fact that many, many people in this country will never go through the doors of the National Museum, the National Concert Hall, but they still want them to exist. Mm-hmm. they still want that sense that somebody is keeping mm-hmm. the cultural life of the nation safe so is that something that we need to add to the complexity of how we value culture and and this is not in that utilitarian sense of how it's being used um, because it's much more distanced so it's, it's just to throw that in I know there are other questions coming. I mean,
3: um, Lena, Robert, do you want to have a go?
4: No, just, as you were saying, that, I was just thinking um, what, what came up earlier on about sort of national pride, and I think there is a lot of people that that, that will take pride in uh, th- these large national cultural organisations being sustained and thriving in a post-pandemic period. But and I think it does reflect well the nation. I think it is something that that individuals do take a lot of a lot of pride in. So it's kind of good to know that they're there.
2: It's, um, it's interesting, Eve, on that point um, in terms of relevance. But when Project 2040 was announced and there was major capital funding for the first time into all of our national cultural institutions, I know that there was some concern and preparation for if there was a pushback in terms of why are we spending this mo- amount of money on our cultural institutions. Because it was, you know, in, 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 in total it was a significant amount. Not enough, but it's significant. Uh, <laughs> but there wasn't at all. Nobody said why isn't this being spent on health or education or policing, or it it was universally applauded and acknowledged and moved on. Uh, So I think there's something you know there there is something in that, but I think I think your point is a really important one, but it shouldn't be a reason not to do the other.
4: Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. And that would be my worry is that not my worry. I think that perhaps sometimes. That happened in the past. That 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 role in of itself was enough. And actually, I think we have to, as institutions, demonstrate our relevance to the to the people that we are there to serve.
1: Yeah. yeah if I could add to that, you know, if what the economists call existence and bequest value, they're they're important values, but they're never sufficient values. And this, I mean, I'm going to be having this drum all along here, that we really cannot ignore the the determinant of all values, really, in the current in the current situation. Actually, I want to add this, my definition of cultural policy. It's the politics, the politics of how we contest and allocate resources to culture. And the politics is important because I think, you know, I've raised a political point here tonight about economic inequality in society. But this is like becoming existential. Just think of the impact in Britain of Brexit and what it did to the 40-year-old agenda for, for, for multiculturalism and cultural inclusion, it, drove a heart, it shattered it completely. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. on the basis that there was a forgotten class of people who got angry and developed these very negative politics, which have profound cultural effects. So we can't really talk about cultural value without processing this. And I think all of our democracies, even this one here, are subject to these pressures at the moment, an increasing drift to the right of the spectrum, and a denial of the very kind of forms of diversity that we all champion. Mm. Um,
3: Powerful point, I think, Maureen. You, I yes. expect you have a thought yeah. on this as well. I, I
0: think that's an excellent point. And uh, I love Lynn's uh, use of the word porous. I think I've heard you use that before in mm-hmm. another um, similar type event. And I just, it's my favorite word from the pandemic, because it, you know, now we absolutely have this opportunity. Society is more porous. There are opportunities. You know, so to your point, Eve, like if you think that somebody living in carlo could access the National Symphony Orchestra, or that they knew they could access it online, you know, that's that's a very powerful thing, and that that means that we're in a far far better place.
3: Another question, John, please. Yeah,
4: uh, just taking up Pat's existence point, um, which is very strong argument. Uh, if you look
3: at me, asking, what proportion of the National Museum's collection would never go on display? And I say that because I have heard things from my grandfather that I put away. I would never, I never visit them, and I would never throw them away. So there's, that's mm-hmm. a, there's a, I'm not suggesting it's a very high proportion that's never on display. But there's still a very strong argument for retaining them.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a. I mean, <laughs> About ninety-five
3: percent of the collection is not on display currently, as of this
2: moment right now. Yeah, and but that doesn't mean it's not accessible. Important point.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, because it is accessible. Not as accessible as I'd like it to be, though, John. If I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. So I think, um, in terms of what is in our museums, there, you know, there, I. I uh, there's an acknowledgment, I think, amongst us all, that we are <coughs> in the, the museum. And when I say we are, I mean my colleagues within across the museum sites, is that, is that we are kind of stuck with, at the moment, with permanent exhibitions that need to be moved and changed. And they aren't really reflective <coughs> in the most part. And We have an interesting challenge at the moment where we have been funded to develop a new exhibition, 20th Century History of Ireland. Uh, which is wonderful and absolutely terrifying at the same time. If I'm perfectly honest, for a lot of reasons, I can see people nodding their heads. <laughs> because, you know, exactly. And if, if, even just to give you an indication, at the moment we're like in a place where we're talking about well, how do we, at the start of this exhibition, in, introduce the p- problematic nature of terms like nation and state, and um, before we even go into this, right? So, so sorry, th- that's just to get to the point that within that exhibition that is giving us an opportunity to bring in a lot of material that's been contemporary collected over over the last 120 years. So, you know, you know, whether it's you know, elements from Magdalene Laundries or whether it's, you know, elements through um kind of design, Kilcanny design to contracting kind of dark and light there in some respects. But um, I think that that piece around how do you access it it, it is a crucial thing. So, that's something that we are looking at in terms of the ongoing collections resource centre and how that becomes accessible. But what I would say is it's really interesting whenever somebody decides to come to the museum for whatever reason, as a personal visit, or we're always able to pull out something from the collection that was dug out (coughs) out of the ground of their home place. And that's quite powerful, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really powerful. And I think. We just need to do a much better job of actually having that out you know, so that people, either through a digitized form or through collections, a good collections resource.
3: Yeah, you mentioned the digital dimension there, which is yeah. obviously, but expensive, and requires its own curation and resources and hosting and all those other issues, which you know, are,
5: that are is a challenge. Problem. It's all expensive. That is the problem. Yeah. It,
3: I think you had a question now, yes,
5: thanks very much for fantastic contributions and I was going to bring up something that you mentioned at the start which was about heritage and I was talking to Ruth Martin about this earlier and where does heritage fit into
0: culture and this this maybe uneasy umbrella term and how can we, can we deal with that and, and thinking of what Stephen was saying as well in terms of the, the value of art or of artists in uh, in Ireland, I would argue goes beyond the foundation of the state, going right back to things like Columbia and the, you know, the rich heritage that we have, and I think we do value it. So I don't know whether, do, do the panel think that we need, I would say urgently, to have a, a definition of what culture means and what culture includes so that
2: everything actually gets proper due attention? Is that something that's, that's worth doing? Uh, well, It's interesting because our heritage is currently outside of our department.
1: I think the biggest challenge um, with that is, question, yeah, hmm. it's cha- yeah. no, but it's, it's, it's it the helps. tendency, and I think, again, Stephen referred to it. When this, you know, I, I used to do this graphic for the artists where, you know the phrase, arts and culture? Well, I would make, you know, arts like 86 points, and I'd make culture <laughs> like 10 point. Because really, when we talk about arts and culture, they drift towards making arts a metonymy for all of culture. Because everybody finds it so difficult to think about culture in any complex form, and this and this is important with civil servants actually, they love to simplify it into the arts then, because then it gets it, it's something they can manage and it's something they feel it's contained, right? But in actual fact, the work around culture is incredibly difficult because you have to try and keep you have to have multidimensional understandings of what's going on at any one time. And I would sometimes think, you know, there might be some virtue virtue, and this might be sound sacrilegious. Like in merging a heritage council with an arts council, so that you've got, you got a, a cross disciplinary mm-hmm. understanding. Because, I mean, I worked in the heritage sector effectively for 30 years, mm-hmm. and I can tell you one of the motivating things about that was that, you know, I, I had much greater access through heritage to that other part of society than I would have through the arts. Let's face it, the arts are largely a middle class domain of activity, and the guild complex of that, of course. Manifest itself, and of course, we have to do outreach, we have to go to working class communities. Nobody wants to go to middle class communities for some reason, <laughs> even though some enlightened, 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 enlightened there might say they're be very service. unsafe. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't go near them, they're already taking the care of. But you know, I, I think there's a lot, in fact, I mean, I learned through bringing art into heritage sites that there was this brilliant thing where, say, working class people would come to the park they used to manage and they'd say, What, what is that? And they'd be suddenly encountering, serendipitously, a piece of sculpture. I just thought that was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And you know, that it wasn't, I am I mean, going to a gallery today. Mm-hmm. Because if you say that to yourself, you always, you always mark yourself off as bourgeois, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's these kind of self-determining mm-hmm. sociological mm-hmm. processes we all go through. Yeah. So uh, the dialogue between the heritage field mm-hmm. and the arts field, I think, has a huge amount I mean, the College Council has been very good at tapping into the voluntary energies of society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and the Arts Council, I have to say, has lost sight. Of. That's one of the tragedies of the history that I've just you know, recounted. Before 1973, great at enabling amateur musical societies, you know, theatrical societies. They lost that. Mm-hmm. And they became about professional mediation. That's mm-hmm. not sufficient. Mm-hmm. And there
3: is obviously a role for Creative Ireland has developed as well. But I don't know if you wanted to comment on it, yeah, Just here.
0: On this particular topic, uh, we now run Culture Night, as people might know. And it's very interesting, the research mm. that we have done around Culture Night, which Roberts and Lynn have been very involved in, too, is it's supporting that idea of not having that chasm. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Culture Night is seen as very democratic, very porous, very mm. appealing, a joyous celebration. Um, and that's because it doesn't have that terrifying arts tag across it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: <laughs> I think it's very important to remember is a lot of expenditure at local government level mm-hmm. The taking up some of the slack you, you yeah. mentioned. Yeah. 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 Uh, the local government expenditure, the mm-hmm. is higher than the
2: outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So you have to take it in the home. And
2: yeah. the role of heritage officers. Yeah. And it's quite interesting, you know, that, that point that I was sort of bringing up about the museum and, and, and the heritage. So, There's Heritage Ireland 2030, which was just launched. And actually, I think myself and Pat are on the same call just Mm. talking about it. And I think it has one line in museums about it within Heritage Ireland 2030. I mean, there's a lot to to fit in, so that's okay. But but I suppose that interplay between those two, and um, I think we're here today maybe in some ways to talk about audience, and to just maybe bring it back to audience again, and the question of audience. There is something about crossing the threshold, right? That perhaps um Pat to your point and to others, heri- you know, people's experiences of heritage have a less definitive threshold to cross.
1: I think we should talk about citizenship before we talk about audiences. Yeah. Um, and if we talked about citizenship more, we would have a better ethics on these on these matters. Because, you know, again, some of the Arts Council's policies on arts and education. They empower a tiny group of artists to go into a highly select number of schools. When it's really as citizens what people need are processes that work universally for all, especially primary school children, We must have that as a goal, that art is in the classroom for all students. We can't just have special experiences of one artist going into that primary school there and maybe five or six more and that's then the job is done. We've got to stop doing that. We have to work on universalist approaches to access to the humanities and the arts within the educational mm. system.
0: And, and creative schools is very much still yes. built, built on that universe.
3: Yeah. I, think, I think you had a question, yeah.
2: Okay, um, I think
5: we touched on some like, really tricky words there, so I want to sort of maybe introduce another one, a question on it. Uh, you all mentioned the word engagement, uh, either with arts and culture generally, or with your own institutions and organisations specifically. Um, And that this was at the forefront of developing the realm of arts and culture and engagement with it. And what I want to ask you is, do you have any strategies in mind of how you will measure the quality of those engagements? Or how will you differentiate
4: different types of engagement?
3: Direct that that's Robert. Uh, okay. Have you uh, yeah. put you on the spot there?
4: Yes, <laughs> I mean, uh, it is a, engagement is is a very is a, 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 a tricky one. But I think it, um, in, I think in recent times engagement has really been more trackable, more measurable, certainly through social media and in digital. Um, activities, and I think certainly in the past couple of years where that has really been such, come to the fore uh, and been so important to all our organisations, that's where we've really seen the, the priority on engagement, to see, you know, what, what are we getting back from the contact that we have with people? Um, is what we're doing meaningful? Is it, is it having impact? Um, it is sometimes very, very difficult to measure, uh, but it certainly has become... Uh, much more of a great priority in the past two years. Um, and, and it's something that we just need to continue to do. And, and I think this you know relates to that whole kind of post-pandemic paradigm shift. Um, and that Maureen, you mentioned it about this the responsibility we have that we, we cannot, you know, continue the status quo, is that we have to now, we're rebuilding our our you know cultural infrastructure, we're rebuilding our audiences. Um, and making sure that engagement is, 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 is wholly, squarely you know, focused on accessibility, diversity and inclusion is absolutely paramount. And then engagement has a really, really critical part to play in that.
1: Mm.
3: The question, if I could, just to ask about what might be a possible tension between social cohesion on the one hand, which has been mentioned a number of times as a, as a kind of value, as a, as a motive, if you like, and a reason for supporting the arts and valuing them, and the critical function of the arts which is presumably not necessarily predicated on social cohesion, but it, which is challenging and questioning and potentially undermining certain orthodoxies and ideologies uh, um, embedded in the society. So, I mean, is that, I don't know, Pat, whether you have any thoughts on this. It might be something that, that you, you've, you've considered. I'm just wondering whether that is a genuine tension or whether we need to speak to the critical function of the arts a little bit more, more, more explicitly.
1: Yeah, I think, I think sometimes we, we assume the critical relationship between the arts um, and the general functions of society. And it can allow for complacency. Now, in this book, I talk about the arts in the Celtic Tiger period. And it's a fact that over about 30 years in this country, um, Charles Hawhey was a very dominant character in the arts field. And many, very very many of our leading uh, artists became highly enamored of, um, of Howie, and their greatest praise was that he did great things for the arts. Well, you know, that's a self-enclosing loop right there. But, you know, one of the tough questions to ask about the, the collapse uh, in, that happened in 2008 was, where, where, the, where had the artists been? Where had been the critical voices mm-hmm. speaking truth to power all through that? And in, in truth, they were very hard to find. Now, they began to emerge, I think, more strongly after that point. Um, so that um, that chap, what's his name, Goldfizzit, he, he, he said, the duty of the artist now is to get kicked out of the country for saying obnoxious things to people in, in power. But, you know, I would find it hard to find an artist who, got, who came even remotely close to getting kicked out of this country for speaking to, uh, to, to power between 1980. And uh, 2010, and of course, all this time they were all saying, "Oh, the, the Arts Council—it's all about you know arms-length distance, so that the freedom of the artist can be protected." Right? It was a myth in itself. I won't go into that. But the question then is, what were you doing with the freedom? You know, where was the critique? Where was the social critique? Why weren't—I mean, just one artist, I think it was—brought uh, out a play, um, Sebastian Barry, in about 2007, that had an, you know. An allegorical critique of it. and people closed around it and said, "This is vicious stuff." And the birth- there was a very bad reception of it in all of the birth- this. And he would not have been my idea of, you know, a radical uh, artist to begin with. Mm. So there, there is this kind of tension between the artist. Mm. I mean, um, Jean O'Frielan, who was an absolutely the wood libertarian, said, "You know, the artist has to suffer." exclusion, and that would be economic exclusion, in order that they can can be a critical voice uh, to to politics. And that's what he was. I mean, he started the Bell magazine in the 40s. He wrote a nadulatory biography of de Valera in 1938. He turned around and wrote another one, which was hugely critical of him in 1943, with the result that he never got another penny from de Valera's government. But that was the price he was willing to pay. Do you know? Interesting. So there is a big debate around liberal, liberal values in the old-fashioned sense, mm-hmm. and what we might call the kind of welfareist values that now seem to include the, the artists within the yeah. governance system to the extent that they are themselves governed by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Maureen, how do, you,
3: how do you navigate that as a funder? I, mean, I imagine that must be a, a certain pressure, that, or do you feel it particularly acutely in making decisions about funding and so on?
0: I don't, I don't feel it. I mean, no. I suppose the world has changed so much since that time. And, um, you know, because like artists have obviously been very involved in, in marriage equality and appeal and so on. But yeah, yeah. there's a certain all facing the same direction now, I think, mm-hmm. a bit. And, yeah. you know, more recently, Ukraine and, and post pandemic. I think it's, it makes it easier for the. To, it, it relieves that tension, usually, I would think. And, and I guess, you know, back to the poorest thing, you know, governments that this the state, we, we might all more or less agree, behave quite well during the pandemic, I think. And is is far more porous, you know, it's far more available to us now. And I and I don't think there's any going back at the risk of sounding like Pollyanna.
2: So um yeah.
0: yeah.
3: Interesting there's, there's an interesting sorry to, <laughs> on that as
2: well, around um, you know, a lot of you know very much in the development of the um, Museum of African American culture and history in the US and he talks a lot about you know the legitimization of, of experience in terms of the roles of museums and, and, and so on mm-hmm. I think that's interesting as well in the context of this conversation to a, to a certain extent particularly when you're talking about you know the sort of national cultural institutions piece and that legitimization I mean we could Probably spent some time just talking about that, but one of the things that interested, you know, on a personal experience, we did an exhibition in the museum around around Magdalene laundries. Uh, it was work by an artist, a glass artist, based in the North, Alison Lowry, and it was um, a very powerful exhibition in terms of and, and and certainly the feedback that we got from visitors. But one of the things that came back, it was around was was the. People who had been in a Magdalene laundry or in very much were saying, "I feel that this legitimises my experience because it's in a cultural institution." So yeah, I, I just bring yeah. that up by way of kind of yeah, talking yeah. about that. It's another element of that uh, of I, I continuation, maybe yeah. of
3: craft. Yeah. I think that's a very important point, and I think there's a kind of almost a politics of recognition, and that the arts as forms of recognition that they give. <laughs> they validate certain kinds of experience and acknowledge mm-hmm. them. So that 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 can that can be part of the, the kind of social mission, and I think the justification and value of the arts. Do we have any other questions? We're kind of getting close to time. Uh, uh, we, I, oh, yes, we yeah, open There's uh, uh, somebody, there I, is I, somebody I, just behind, yeah. so yes, please, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question in relation to
0: the relevance, because there was a mention of,
4: um King's Place, can we have a King's Place in Dublin as well, please? <laughs> <laughs> in your spare time, um, you can just, you, know, say, nice, you
5: nice. work one up. To the, say, the National and um, the program being relevant to people, or the program of, so whether there's an education program or a collection. And because we're talking about data, I'm really interested in seeing who is in the room who is not, and I find it very, very difficult myself. How would you measure whether something is not attended or whether something you know how do you can you tell whether something you're doing is irrelevant versus something that is it can be irrelevant to certain people uh, or whether people are not interested because they're purely interested in something else so how would you measure who's not in the room why they're not in the room and maybe the oh sure i mean be i mean
4: in, in the uk I was able to do that because of the information that I could get from the audience agency that, that aggregates data and information from a very, very wide and broad number of cultural organizations. So I had comparability. Yeah. So I could look at uh, comparing um, someone like King's Place to the Barbican, or to the Wigmore Hall, or the South Bank Center. So I could, so, I, so it enabled me to do that kind of profile. Uh, is that um, where am I doing well in terms of comparability Where where am I not doing so well. So, I mean, so it was, it was um, you know, it wasn't a perfect science by any means but having that, um, that, that broad comparability was very, very helpful and of course it wasn't just looking at music venues, it was also looking at, at non-music venues in the cultural uh, sector, so, so there, there was a way of looking at it from a sort of macro and micro level. Um, but, but that's where I got that uh, insight into who am I engaging with, who am I not engaging with, who's coming, who's not coming. Um, yeah, as always,
5: because sometimes what's missing is how do I get information
4: from people who are not coming yeah. if they're not coming? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is difficult. And, and you also had to do, I mean, I also sort of undertook our own surveys. Uh, and polls and focus groups and things like that. Uh, so, and, and focus groups were a good way of being able to recruit people who we knew didn't, never came. So we were able to sort of ask them directly, why aren't you coming? What would you, what would you come to see if we had it on? You know? uh, so, so there are other you know, ways that we did kind of try and delve deeper into answering those kind of questions.
3: Yeah, thanks. The question at the back, yeah?
4: Yeah, it's more of a
1: remark than a question. Mm-hmm. Um, as an artist who was trying to make a living from, from uh, art, I find it a terrible cliche to think, or to suggest, that an artist has to suffer to make good work. Mm-hmm. I find that really, I've heard that that's like it's a, an old uh, idea for me, it's completely irrelevant, I find To think about that is really another way to address mm-hmm. this.
3: And do you, do you find, I mean, in what context does it come up with, like, like people are, well, do, just generally people offer that is, to you? You know, people have this
1: concept that you have to suffer sort of particular, and I, I don't believe that for a moment. I think it's okay. ridiculous. Yeah. Can, can I come but back I mean, on that? Was, since yeah, I mean, to see you. Uh, uh, the the qualification. Yeah, but yeah uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that I was actually quoting. Uh, when I said that and that those were the values that he lived and was prepared to live by all of his life and I think that's pretty admirable in itself but I I do think there is a genuine choice for any artist who, um, who wants to be socially engaged or even more so politically engaged they do have a choice that they may make themselves unpopular and the question then becomes for them at an ethical level: How far are you prepared to take that? And the other aspect of this, as well, is, of course, I'd like you know, there's there's this assumption that we've all come into this idea of thinking of artists as professionals. So sometimes I meet people and they say, "I'm a professional artist," which means that I might get an I might get a grant from the Arts Council for three thousand, this time, whatever, or so, whatever. But the best example I can think of this is the was Uh, There was a theatre group that put on a play in Leitrim in 2004 and there were two performers and there were two people in the audience and the total takings on the night was 28 euros, half of which had to go to the venue, so they got 14 euros. I think I did that gig. The point point, point I want to get around to here is they thought of themselves and perceived themselves as professionals, but in actual real terms they were amateurs. That we're doing it for the love of it, because th- these are one of the, the base words in modern discourse. By the way, amateur is—I've now done i have done a TED talk on this. Um, amateur is equivalent to messer or somebody who doesn't take anything seriously. How did we get mm-hmm. to a point where the, Latin, where the word, with the Latin root of which is the word for love, a amo, now means messer and somebody who is just a dilettante? You know, we really need to investigate that. Doesn't mean that. But the point is that artists can be much more than besides artists, after all. T.S. Eliot was a publisher. Uh, uh, Wallace Stevens, I think, it was an insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, you know, There's no reason why we cannot mix. I mean, Robbie, Roddy Doyle got most of his inspiration for his early books by being a school teacher. Mm-hmm. What's ignoble about that? Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. I John, you, uh, we'll come back to John. and. Uh, yes, sorry, that's, that's, um, just, uh, your barometer is a very good source of data. Just a question here. There's a huge section mm-hmm. on why people don't attend. Yeah. So it's it's extremely good. I just want to come back to the innovation experimentation, and that's also critiquing society. Robert, I'm going to ask you, what do you see the role of the National Concert Hall in
4: experimentation, allowing new composers to perform, even if the hall is empty? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I have this conversation nearly every day, and the tension between uh, having a full hall uh, and the tension between, uh, particularly in the post-COVID environment, about having a popular, genuinely popular and accessible program, because there's the need to get people back and the need to get people out of the habit, you know, of watching Netflix at home and actually get them back into our cultural organisations. But I feel very, very strongly is that. Is, is the responsibility, though, that this is a once-in-a-generation moment when we actually truly have to deliver on what we've been promising for a long time, but never truly delivered, uh, and that's to ensure that we are being, you know, meaningfully inclusive and diverse and accessible, uh, and that means that it has to be a venue, a destination, which is open to experimentation, innovation supporting young and emerging artists and music makers and we have to be confident as the, in that some things might fail spectacularly uh, and we have to be and I, I, I want that to be the, the kind of organization that we are that we that we can experiment we can uh, have the confidence for things to not be successful in terms of occupancy and and revenue and I, and I, and I And it's my kind of mission to ensure that we're not just rating our success by how full the the hall is. Mm -hmm. And it has to be based on other measurements and matrices. Uh, But that's something I'm I'm sort of grappling with every day. Mm -hmm.
3: A good point. point. of inspiration on which so to end. Please join us at 5.30. And now, I, I, back to Eve.
5: Thank you very much, Dan. I'm not going to keep anyone, but just uh, to close <laughs> with a couple of comments, uh, so I think somebody, I don't know who... I can't remember who it was, but self-caricatured us earlier today by saying, are we just a a bunch of middle-class people with time on our hands talking about ideas? (laughs) Stephen. Was it Stephen? Yeah. Of course. Uh, I hope hope we've (laughs) actually done a little bit more than that, but I think the key thing is um, that if we simply drop this conversation at this point, then we haven't achieved anything. Uh, I know a number of people have come to me during the course of the day to say, can we take this further, can we fine tune some of this thinking um, and and can we address many of the the ideas that have come up over the course of the day in other forums. So I think Stephen, you're happy to keep in touch with me through the Hub uh, as a kind of centre point, so if anybody has suggestions or comments or thoughts on how we might revisit this discussion and expand it and keep that focus on how we're defining cultural policy uh, and the much more difficult question perhaps of how we're defining and developing uh, in a more sophisticated way, um, how we're using cultural value and metrics for that, whatever they might be, then we need to do that. And and from my point of view, I need to make sure that my colleagues in academia are fully uh, paid up and engaged with that uh, discussion as well. So I hope that we will see you all again uh, for uh, some continuation of this discussion. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I want to say many thanks um, to everybody who's spoken and our friends, our guests from the Centre for Cultural Value, our wonderful panellists Stephen, Emma, Ruth, Dan, thank you so much for chairing as well. I also want to thank people who've helped out, the whole Hub team, uh, Francesco Rafferty, who runs our tech so brilliantly, and many other things besides. But in particular, Quiva Whelan, who's done all the heavy lifting on putting this symposium together. So thank you very much, Quiva. I want to thank everyone who's joined us, and and the many of you who've made contributions from the audience or spoken in discussions. It's been very welcome. It's been very meaningful. Um, So thank you very much again, and uh, to the students in particular, I hope to see you again in the Long Room Hub. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Uh, I know Thank we're going, going to now the make our again. way. <laughs>
1: And print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taiwanese library.
5: As well as being haired.
0: The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Carl T. The, the, the hub is about
2: impact. The hub is for everyone. the rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.